Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey guys, thanks for coming back out to Choices Not Chances. And just like every other episode, we ask that if there's something that you take away from this episode that needs to be shared out, you know that it needs to be shared out. Don't be selfish with the information. Today, our guest is Ken Sample. We have a mutual friend and his future son-in-law, Tom, and we met at a recent um, a recent venue that was held by our VFW, and and you know some guys came out. Uh, we had some different trainers going on and different uh, different events and and uh, and things like that going out at the VFW, and I ran into Ken, and Ken struck me as a pretty interesting guy. He um, needs to come on the show, in my opinion, because I've never talked to somebody that was in Ken's shoes uh to date and today we're going to have that conversation ken spent a lot of his time in the service and a lot of service to the country uh by way of being a surgeon um and he started out uh you know just like all of us do and we're going to kind of get get to the beginning of that to find out uh find out how we got to the end uh so ken thanks for coming out to the show i appreciate you being on and uh, I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I know that we talked offline. We had it scheduled once already, and I had some uh, some physical things come down I had to take care of. And then uh, and now we're we're kicking it today. So thanks for coming out to the show. Well, you're quite welcome. All right. So basically, with my show, the way the way that I like to write uh, to rock it is in the beginning. I have a, just a few pointed questions about culturally. Where did you come from? So I like to understand people's uh, upbringings, their their childhood years, their rearing. Um, where do you come from? Uh, who do you come from? So I am from Kentucky, uh, a good old Southern redneck. Uh, my uh, uh, my, I'm the uh, fourth of three kids, but I was really sort of an only child. My, uh, my siblings are, are 10, 11, and 12 years older than me. Uh, so eventually I would meet a, meet a high school sweetheart that ex- is almost exactly nine months older than me. So we like to say that God looked down and said, oh, my gosh, we need somebody for Debbie. And she, they said, Pete and Rosemary haven't had a kid for a while. I guess it's their time. <laughs> and so that's, that's how I came about. But uh my mom and dad were both civil service. My dad was a, a, a mechanic. He did uh, worked at Fort Knox on tanks. I always thought that was kind of fun. Uh, and my mom worked at the Social Security Administration, and uh, they were determined that all of our all of us went to college, which we did. Neither one of them had had managed that. Um, my dad was a World War II veteran and loved the Navy. He stayed in the reserves and ultimately retired from the reserves. And uh, he's, he always uh, was always wanting uh, one of us to go in the military. And so I grew up kind of thinking I wanted to be in the Navy. And then uh, in high school, I wore, I wore glasses growing up. And, and I actually had a recruiter that pretty much told me uh, there wasn't much of a future for me in the Navy wearing glasses. Hmm. So I kind of gave up with that, and I didn't know what I was going to do. My wife said, I always wanted to marry a doctor. Why don't you be a doctor? So... <laughs> 
So that's what I decided to do. I didn't tell the uh, interviewers when I went to med school that that was why I wanted to be a doctor. But, right. But that was pretty much it. But uh, so anyway, so I got into, so I'd given up on the military. And uh, literally the, the day after I received my acceptance to medical school, um, my wife and I were walking across the quad at our college, walked through the student center, and there was a Navy recruiter there. And I didn't even stop to give him time of day or anything. We were just walking by, and he said, "Hey there, how? Uh, what are you doing?" Or something to that effect. Basically, you know, he, he said, "What year are you?" And I said, "That's a senior graduating." He said, "Well, do you know what you're going to do next year?" And I was all puffed up and proud of myself, and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to go to medical school." <laughs> and he said, "Have I got a deal for you?" Mm-hmm. And so basically, the the military scholarship, Navy scholarship. Uh, would pay for medical school and and uh, and all of that. So we talked it over, and so that's what I did. And so I got into the got into the uh, scholarship program, went to med school, and and started out in the Navy on active duty in 1984. Check, check. Now going back just a little bit, um, did you play sports in school coming up? Uh, I was never a high school athlete. I played little league baseball and I, mm-hmm. I mean, I like to play playground sports, but mm-hmm, in those mm-hmm. days there wasn't a lot of organized sports like there are today. And little league, there, there was not any, I like playing playground football, but there was no, you know, organized leagues for football in those days, no peewee football. So baseball, I never particularly cared for basketball for some reason, but, uh, but so I didn't really play a lot of organized sports. Tracking, tracking. Um, and so you said you're almost like an only child because of how much older your other siblings were. So they right. were they were already kind of up and out of the house by well, the time yeah, you I mean, come into were, high school. By the time I was old enough to remember things, you know, four or five, my uh, my brother had actually started out to be a priest. So he was going to the seminary from basically the time I was born until uh, about seventh or eighth grade i guess he came back after he got out of the seminary gave that up uh and then my uh my old my older of the two sisters uh when i, when I left the house uh you know, she was in college in town but she got her own apartment when i was about seven or so so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and my sister married when when i was about 10 12 so it was kind of you know they were off doing their own things pretty much when i was growing up Gotcha. And you also said that education was highly, um, highly preached at, in your home, but that neither one of your parents had managed to get that college education. Can you, can you so, go into right. that a little deeper? So both, uh, both of my parents were, my dad was from Kansas. He was, a uh, he was one of 12 kids and, uh, raised on a farm during the depression and his, uh, his, he his school, you know, it was a public school, little small town school that went from first grade to 12th grade. So he was with the same 15 to 17 kids or so all through school. And he, he made a point of saying that he had, uh, there was another girl that he was con- competing against all throughout his school years. And they went back and forth over who was in the number one in the class. I forget how it wound it up, whether he was valedictorian or she was valedictorian and, and vice versa. But anyway, so he was he was good in school, but, you know, the 1930s, uh, Kansas, you, you know, uh, you just didn't grow up to plan on going to college. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then 
my mom, uh, uh, she was, she tried to go to college, but again, her, she was, by that time, her mom had died and she was in a single parent household and, you know, girls back then it was, it was not more traditional totally, yeah, roles, but it wasn't a traditional thing. And so again, if I remember correctly, she went and managed to go to one year of college, but I'm not even sure about that, but but she just it was not something that they could swing and then world war ii started and she went to work and that was that she mm -hmm. just kept on working mm -hmm. where do you think the um the drive or the imperative nature of their kids all going to college comes from um i think i think it again it was that generation you know post-war that's what everybody you know everybody wanted their kids to go to college and when you look back that that's you know, that was the big, big time when everybody, you know, did start uh, sending kids to college. It was the American dream, go to college, you know, make things better for your for your kids. I know for one of the things that uh, for me, um, it was like from about, I don't know, late grade school on, it was like that was that was just the plan. There was like no doubt mm -hmm, in anybody's mm -hmm. mind, mine or the or parents or anything that I would go to college. And, um, and part of it was when, uh, when I, you know, I told you I wanted to be in the, in the, uh, Navy, it was like, it was always to be a Naval officer and not, and I had to be a, you know, go to college to be that for the most part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was part of it early on. Mm -hmm. And so, but it just, uh, you know, I think, uh, both mom and dad, they they looked at if they're not going to college as a missed opportunity and they were they were gonna make sure their, their kids didn't miss that chuck chuck okay so you decide you run into this recruiter you decide that hey that doesn't sound like a half bad idea and it pays for some mm -hmm. of this navy scholarship's going to pay down right. so it's not going to burden or be burdensome mm -hmm. as far as financially and maybe that sounds like a good idea and then again there's the thought that we're really not in a wartime right now so um you, well now don't, now don't don't speak of that too quick because remember that was the height of the cold war uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was that was uh spring of 80 reagan was elected that fall which was interesting one of my classmates who was applying for i think it was for the army but it was a military scholarship during the school year mm -hmm. he had all his paperwork filled out and the night that, that reagan won the uh, uh presidency he he tore up his paper because his papers and he said he was convinced we were going to be in a war and he wasn't going to go in if that was the case. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. No, uh, definitely a contentious time period uh, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And it was, it was also, you know, post-Vietnam military wasn't very popular then either. Right, right. Okay, so how does it work when you're going to do that? You go to college for a couple of years and then you do your officer candidacy uh, schools so, or how's that work? Also, in this case, so for medical, for going to medical school, you get your bachelor's degree mm -hmm. before you ever get accepted to medical school. And then for the scholarship program, you have to be, you're accepted to a medical school before you can even apply. And so I'd already, like I said, I'd gotten accepted uh, and then just ran into this guy. So I had to apply. For, apply. It was interesting because it was, a, it was late in the year uh for the applications and so the recruiter said hey if you're going to do this you need to jump on it because at any time we ex we will expect to get the word that we're that we're full 
and to not take any more applications. And so I, I called all of the people that I put down for references and I got my physical real quick and did all of that stuff. And, uh, he said, uh, the recruiter said we, he got off my application faster than he remembered ever getting anybody's off. It was two weeks <laughs> that it went off. And then when I got the acceptance, which was around March, first part of March, he said in the same batch of mail that they got the letter showing that I'd been accepted, that they also got word that they were not to take any more applications because they were full. Oh, man, you were one of the last ones then, huh? I was one of the last ones. So anyway, um, then uh, basically the scholarship at that time, and I think it's pretty much the same now, but in, in those days, um, your, the benefits were they paid, paid all t- books and tuition. Mm-hmm. which uh, UofL was a state school, so the Navy got a bargain with me. My, my uh, tuition, I found out later, my tuition was around four or $5,000 a year, and some of the people that were, were in the same uh, year group as me, their tuition at that time was going twenty twenty five thousand 25000 a year. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. the Navy got a bargain. Uh, but they, and then they also gave you a stip- monthly stipend, which in those days was about $500 a month. And uh, the real, a real benefit uh, that they, I think they've done away with, and, and I don't know if it's come back or not, they've talked about it, but in those days, the uh, med school counted for pay purposes. So that when I got out of med school and started, uh, I was, got promoted to Lieutenant 03 and was paid for as a Lieutenant over 04. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, that changed for people that came in six months later it had changed so when i was an intern i was getting paid as a lieutenant over four and some of my intern mates were getting paid as a lieutenant under two mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, so that was an interesting change and the other thing that got that i snuck in on was that med school counted for retirement pay for years only if you did 20 so so you had to do your 20 but if you did 20 then the med school got tacked on to that. So that made a big ah, difference okay. down the road uh, in my case. And so, uh, but that, and that was basically it. And then uh, by going into, you were not guaranteed a military internship or residency, but if you, but if you got, cause there wasn't enough, there wasn't as many spots as there were people coming out of med school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, did do a Navy internship or residency, then you got paid active duty pay, which at, at that time was almost three times as much as what it, I would have gotten paid as a civilian. Mm-hmm. So a lot of monetary benefits to it. And then the payback for it was uh, year for year uh, for each year of, of school. And then the time and training, like internship or residency, didn't count. Mm-hmm. So, so that was just kind of dead time. And yeah, you paid back after that. Check. Check. So where do you go first after you commission? So I went to uh, Portsmouth Naval Hospital as as a surgery intern uh, and did that for a year. And then in those days, uh, most, I guess it was most surgical specialties and most, most medical specialties you, you wound up not being able to go straight through to residency and had to go out and do some time as a, a general medical officer uh for uh 
basically one to four years until you could uh, get back into residency. Check. And, and so what's that first year look like though, as, as a, uh, as an intern, what, what kind of, um, what kind of things are you doing at the hospital? So I did, uh, we did our intern group year was broken into 13, four week periods. And so we would rotate them amongst the different specialties. And I mean, if you, you look on pretty much any medical TV show about interns, you know, we're the, uh, we're the, uh, peons of the medical world. And so, and that was way, that was in the good old days when we didn't have any kind of work restrictions or anything like that. So I would do anything from drawing blood to starting IVs to, to running down lab results or, or pushing a patient down to x-ray to get an x-ray. Um, uh, most of the time I, uh, averaged about 120 hours a week. Wow. Uh, pretty much spent my spent my time exhausted we averaged uh about every third night on call so uh, unlike today where they do do a night on call and then go home the next morning we just then started our next day and started working so they'd be 36 plus, uh, plus hours on mm-hmm. uh, got a taste of uh surgery surgical subspecialties and did a rotation in peds and a rotation in internal medicine and and basically all the things to get you ready to do, to practice general medicine. And at this point, um, are you married to your high school sweetheart? I was married. We were actually married in college. Married in college. Okay. And so how is she taking this transition into new military um, life? So the, uh, she still tells the story. She was so insulted. Uh, she got pregnant uh, with our second child right after uh, uh, I started active duty. And she still tells the story of going in for her medical check and giving them a, a urine sample, and they wanted my social security number. Um, and she wanted to give them hers, and they're like, no, we don't care about yours. We want it. <laughs> and she thought that was so terrible that she was uh, reduced to, to my number. But, uh, but Tied to the had, benefits. We need yeah. that number. <laughs> yeah. So, but she had... Uh, uh, she she was a nurse and she had worked while I was in medical school. We graduated from college at the same time, so she had worked those four years as a nurse. And so one of the offsets for all of the pain of leaving home and and being away from her family and everything was that she wasn't working. So she mm-hmm. could you know, so all of the it wasn't like she was trying to do a do two jobs at once. She still only had one job and that was raising the kids and and so she she did pretty well with it. Uh, uh, she um, she never quite got into the idea that the wives wore the ranks of their husbands. So she was always hanging around and talking to uh, uh, you know more the more senior people's wives. And she didn't care. They didn't care. So it, it all worked out. But yeah, yeah. so but, and uh, the other thing that made it pretty easy for her in those days uh, I, I was actually broken service I got out ultimately got out in 95 but in that first period of time uh, between 84 and 95 the longest I was ever away from home was uh, was about three months and so she didn't didn't deal with a lot of the hardships of deployments and everything that a lot of the military spouses deal with 
Sure, so. sure. Yeah, I think that's big. And I like to touch on, you know, the significant others in, in a lot of my in a lot of my interviews, because even sometimes when you're not deployed, if you're pulling 120 hours a week, man, that's kind of like being deployed. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of your waking hours, you're at your you're at your 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 work, your hospital mm-hmm. in this case, or right. a ship later on. Right. And, and a lot of people I don't want to say a lot of people and reduce that, but there are a mass of people that don't even understand that war is real, let alone understand that the spouses and the children's and the, and the mm-hmm. mothers and the fathers, this is yeah. a package deal. When your spouse or mm-hmm. your significant other or your child goes away to war or goes away for 120 hours mm-hmm. a week helping out with an effort, whether, you know, whether that's a, you know, any kind of job doesn't matter. That mm-hmm. puts a load on, um, on the other spouse and on, you know, on the other family members, depending on the, you know, severity and the danger of the situation, which mm-hmm. later we'll get into with you, um, you know, headed back out. And so I always want to touch on that. But um, so after you do your rotation in peds and, and the other sections, did you have a feeling in your mind of what you like the best? So I always wanted to be a surgeon. There was no question about it. Uh, going into medicine, I didn't know what I didn't understand why anybody would do medicine and not want to be a surgeon. But it's one of those, you know, we kind of we we always boil it down, you know, makes simplify things. And it's like to me, it's like a surgeon like is like a mechanic who wants to get in and fix something. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the non-surgical medical specialties, uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a, it's a lot of brain brain power, like a detective who wants to. You know, doesn't particularly want to fix it, but they want to know what's what's broken and why is it broken and, mm-hmm. and that, that kind of thing. And so it's it really is a personality driven thing, I think, for, you know, probably 90 percent or more. You know, I guess there's always outliers of, of people that don't quite fit the mold. And, and people said that I didn't really personality wise. I was strange as a surgeon because I was a nice guy. <laughs> What are they not nice guys generally? And so, you know, they say, especially in training and everything, they talk about, you know, the surgeons typically are, are kind of brutish and yell a lot and godlike and all of that. And, and people always kind of said that I was just a down to earth, you know, that they wouldn't know I was a surgeon uh, talking to me unless, mm-hmm. unless they knew I was a surgeon because I just didn't fit that mold. But at the same time, the mold of, you know, it was always I wanted to fix something, get it fixed, and move on to the next one to fix. Check. And so I always wanted to be a surgeon. Now, it was interesting. Internship was so miserable that I did did uh, stray a little bit. And for, for a little while, as I was doing my GMO stuff, uh, I thought I would try and be a urology, urologist. You're, you know, that was still surgery. But they had a much nicer residency. They didn't work near as hard as the general surgery residents. And uh, for various reasons, because of, of cutting programs at Portsmouth and this and that, I didn't get back into urology right away. And I was so miserable as a GMO, uh, I realized that, you know, it's probably those four years of residency that would be miserable. I should mm-hmm. probably still suck it up and do what I really wanted to do instead of being stuck in something I really didn't, didn't particularly want to do. So then I, I uh, went back and, and uh, finally got into the surgery program, general surgery. And is that, that's where you go next? Uh, so after the four years of, as a GMO, then I went back to Portsmouth as a, as a general surgery resident. Okay. And um, 
walk me through that. Now you're coming back. Now you're a general surgery, surgery mm -hmm. resident. And that means you're actually doing operations, I would assume, right? So, every day, yeah. So, that, so at that point, basically, you know, residency is kind of like an apprenticeship and you're, uh, you're, uh, actually doing surgery, you know, start out with the simple stuff and, and, and going on, uh, in those days, general surgery was still a, um, a lot of you know kind of kind of trained to do anything it's kind of it's changed a little bit uh but there the uh, number of subspecialty subspecialty sur surgical uh fields was much less mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we would uh we rotated through general surgery neurosurgery uh urology uh, gastroenterology you know basically learning a lot of the other stuff uh, we like to always say that you know our specialty we learned to operate so even though we might not operate on the neck all the time because because we knew how to operate we could go there and still operate in the neck or we could operate wherever we needed to whereas a lot of specialty subspecialists we talk about they learned uh, you know, and this is more tongue in cheek, maybe, but that they learned operations, but not necessarily how to operate. Hmm. Makes sense. And so, anyway, if anything, the residency hours were worse than internship hours. Uh, but uh, uh, and I, yeah, I still distinctly remember waking up about you know four in the morning on about after about two weeks after starting the residency and thinking I'll never be able to do this for four years. Hmm. And, uh, just you know, taking it one day at a time. After about, uh, after right, right around a year time frame, it was it, time was going so slow, and I was feeling so miserable. I actually started counting off the days until I was finished. You know, something like four thousand, not four thousand. Uh, you know, something like twelve hundred or something days to go till I was finished. <laughs> and throughout those three years, people would ask me, uh, "Hey, how many, how many days?" And I could spout it off. Boom. How many days until we were done. And, uh, so, uh, but it was, uh, it was intense and I got through it. Why did they do that? Why is it structured that way? Um, part of it is because it's, it's cheaper for the hospital. At least it used to be because, um, I remember when I, and this was med school, not, not the Navy, but it's, but the same thing holds that, uh, I was, rotating in a hospital in med school and and we were drawing labs and doing that kind of thing and and uh, somebody spoke up and said that the uh, new new management of the hospital uh was talking about uh creating iv teams and and blood drawing teams and but the, the management said no why would we do that we got free labor doing it now why would we spend the money to do that mm -hmm. now in the meantime they've started doing that because it winds up being cheaper and the, uh, the residency and internship hours have been drastically limited. But the other part of it is, I really think is in order to get the, the amount of training that we got in that four year residency, you would have to stretch it out so long, uh, to, um, to get that same amount. And I mean, even today with all the, the, uh, restrictions on ours and everything uh, a lot of residents are coming out of residency and feeling like they really aren't comfortable operating because they don't have the experience mm. and whereas, you know we 
the numbers we had, number of cases we did uh, in the old days was so much greater because we were there so long doing it so long. And that, I guess and so that, I, that was part of my question was, are they doing it? so that they can get max experience and even maybe max experience under stress and, you know, and, yeah, and then and, that can I mean, kind of play that over. Was always, and... That was always the argument was that the, uh, uh, you know, you need, you, you need to be able to operate under, under stress and under tension. And one of the ways to, to uh, artificially do that was to be sleep deprived. Yeah. And, yeah. and working those long hours and, you know, the validity of that, I'm not sure, but that was one of the, one of the arguments they always, always said, um, the other, the, the unspoken thing in my opinion was that when you get out of residency, you have to, uh, you have to be able to, uh, you know, you, you get paid by what you do. And so, uh, if you restrict a, a surgeon and say, Hey, you can't operate, you can only operate for eight hours a day. Uh, then all of a sudden he's not going to be able to do as many operations, not going to be paid as much. And, and nobody wants that. So nobody wants to have those restrictions. Mm -hmm. uh, and for late and lately, especially we were, we kept getting compared to uh, commercial pilots in the cockpit and, you know, the, the operating teams like the, like the team in the cockpit. And I always said one of the, you know, one of the difference was they had a strong union so that, that they got paid they got their hours limited, but they still got paid for it. Mm -hmm. You know, they got mm -hmm. paid, and, uh, you know, in medicine, like I said, you get paid for the cases you do and, and doctors like to make money. So they don't want anything that's going to restrict how many cases they can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to say that I know for sure, but I suspect that if you looked at the, uh, you know, happiness quotient of residents today versus 20, 30 years ago, it would, they'd be much happier. Um, <laughs> but I don't, you know, and, and, and there has been a, a change in, in the, um, uh, how, how surgeons and doctors, see see their life and i mean they people basically want more of a life now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot of, especially surgeons it was kind of just understood if you went into surgery you didn't have as much of a life so check it's, it's check and so let's get let's get towards the end of residency as those days are counting okay. down is that exciting for you i would assume uh, oh yeah <laughs> yeah so uh so the way the way residency worked is by, by the time, pretty much by the end of our second year, because we, our our program uh, at that time had been cut to two residents per year group, and so by the end of the uh, second year, we were our third year on, we were considered chief residents, and so we ran a team and we were in charge of the team, and so we got you know now with, with that came responsibility but we were kind of ready for that and we but we were finally starting to be able to do things you know our way and you know how it is you always when you're learning something you always think oh i could do that better if we did it this way it would be better and mm -hmm, so then we mm -hmm. things our own way and find out it didn't really make it any better <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you know it just and you could start feeling the you know start feeling the end and was near and the 
the staff started treating you with a little bit more respect and and uh, so it just it was you know much better as time went on so maybe not counting those days so closely in that last year Oh no, I'm still counting them. It was still, it was still long, still long hours. Still I mean, I, we talk about how you know, and even the kids. Uh, my uh, the daughter uh, when the, when I was an intern and and my wife was pregnant, that daughter Mary uh, still talked about how she was all excited. She was, uh, I guess, she was about seven or something like that, and uh, she's we went on a daddy daughter date on a Saturday morning to go see the Muppet Christmas had just come out. Nice. And, uh, and I lasted about five minutes before I fell asleep. Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. And she still talks about it. And you know, it was, I heard her feelings and I went to sleep and she was scared to death because she was in this theater with strangers. <laughs> oh no. And, and so, I mean, it was, and, and at that point I was a, a senior chief resident. So I was, you know it was still a good time but it was still i was still tired all the time i was still falling asleep at the supper table and that kind of thing so yeah now did you have um coming down to the end of your residency did you know where you wanted to be did you know you what you wanted to specialize in at that point well so or feel comfortable at least well general surgery is a specialty so that was that was and i was okay okay at that point, I didn't want to do any subspecialty because I was I was done with. After residency, if you want to do a subspecialty, you do fellowship, which is a little bit better than residency, but not a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot better. Usually, it's one to two years. And I just, at that point, I was done. I didn't want to do any more of that stuff. I wanted to get out, and and, and I was happy with being a general surgeon. I thought I would be so. Mm-hmm. Um, but interesting as far as going where where was I going to go next? Uh, I spent my entire time planning to go to Gitmo when I okay. got out of residency, because uh, in those days, if you were uh, if you trained at Portsmouth, you were pretty much guaranteed you were either going to go to a ship to Iceland because uh, we still had a hospital there, or to um, Gitmo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I happened to, when I was on the Puget Sound as a GMO, we, we did our re- uh, refresher training at Gitmo. And I looked at, you know, it's a nice tropical island. It wasn't too bad. And everybody I talked to that was there said they were bored, bored to tears because there was not much to do medically. And, uh, but on the other hand, it was good for family time. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an accompanied tour, so it was good for family time and, you know, going to the beach and scuba diving and doing all that kind of stuff. And so I uh, – and nobody wanted to go to Gitmo, so I spent my time figuring, well, if I want to go to Gitmo, I probably won't have any problems getting there. No competition, yeah. But, yeah, so I taught, had talked to Debbie, and we thought that would be a pretty good idea as opposed to me getting on a ship and being gone for another six or eight months or whatever after residency and, and – None of us really wanted to go to Iceland where it was cold. <laughs> so, uh, so I actually, the year, a year before I finished, I called the detailer and said, Hey, I know it's early, but I wanted to get my name on the list. And he said, all right, where do you want to go? And I said, Gitmo. And he like, you could hear the pause. And he says, Gitmo? And I said, yeah. He said, nobody wants to go to Gitmo. And I said, yeah, no, I do. <laughs> so he said, you're sure about this? And I said, yeah. He said, well, that makes my life a whole lot easier. Yeah. That was so. That was the plan, and then about 
six months, about December that year, six months later, I was operating with a new staff guy whose brother was a Gitmo. And uh, so we were talking about it, and he, he told me that his brother uh, thought he liked it so much he was going to extend. Oh, boy. So Git, Gitmo was one-year orders at the time. So I, like, finished the operation and got on the phone with the detailer. <laughs> I, said, you know, I said, remember me? And he said, yeah, you're the guy that wants to go to Gitmo. Let me guess, you don't want to go to Gitmo anymore. And I said, well, no, I actually do, but I'm hearing – rumblings that the guy down there is going to want to extend wants to extend and i said i was the first one that called you i don't want to be stuck at the end of the line with with you know what's going to happen to me yeah, yeah. so he said well he said let me let me look at things and he says you know there's three there's three surgery billets at millington uh memphis mm-hmm. and he said and i've got it unofficially that all three of the people there are leaving two getting out and one's retiring or yeah i guess that's what what it was or maybe they were all getting out but anyway all three of them unofficially were leaving were were gonna be leaving and so he said so i I, i'm sure that at least one of those spots will be vacant would you be interested in that well millington was like three hours from uh, home oh yeah uh, so i said yeah that'd be great and he said well how about i pencil you in and i said well how about if you just pin me in and we'll call it good? Yeah, yeah. He said, okay, I can do that. And so that's what he did. And so from that point on, I was set to go to Millington. Gotcha. And what year are we talking about checking into Millington? So I got there in 93. Okay. Uh, and uh, that was about a year before the the BRAC that wound up saying that they needed to close. Oh, check. And then you get bumped from there to a new duty station. So, well, so that was what it was going to be was I was, uh, my oldest daughter was, uh, started high school when we got there. Mm-hmm. And so when I got those orders, I really thought that set my career path. I was going to do four years in Millington, figured I could extend, extend the three years to four years, get her through high school, would then do a couple years of whatever the Navy wanted me to do, go overseas or do whatever. And then find some place to go do four more years for the second daughter to get through high school. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. I would, or I'd have like two years left and my wife and I could just do whatever and we'd be fine. Little mm-hmm. did we know we had another baby that was going to show up. But, uh, but, it, but that was the plan when I got those orders. And then, uh, like I said, Brack came through and recommended that Millington close and they were going to close at the end, around the end of my third year. Okay. And so that was going to mean was um, the oldest daughter was going to wind up going someplace new for her senior year. Yeah. High school. And that didn't want to do that. And we didn't want to, I didn't want to run, go off someplace and leave the family behind in in Memphis for her to finish her, her year by herself, you know, the family without me. And unfortunately, I was kind of dumb. In retrospect, I probably could have called the detailer and said, hey, you know, given all of this, is there any chance we can break my orders and give me, you know, send me someplace new at the end of two? And then that way, at least the daughter would be someplace for the last two years. I just assumed, well, I got three years of orders. That's going to be it. So I was, uh, my time was up. My obligation was paid up after two. And so I just decided for that reason and, and 
my, my parents were getting older. My wife's parents were getting older. We just decided to get out and go home. Chuck. And so that's what good. Chuck. And so walk me, th- walk me through that once the decision's made and you're already living close to home at that point. What, uh, mm-hmm. you just stay in that, in that house or. No. So we moved on back, back towards Louisville. We got, I got, uh, I uh, wound up getting into a practice with a with a uh, older surgeon uh, in a small town that was about an hour from Louisville. Okay. And, uh, so I was in private practice there. Um, interestingly enough, no one ever asked me why I was getting out. Huh. Uh, when I was getting out, if anybody had asked me, I think I, you know, and I'd have told them, I think they probably would have fixed the problem, you mm-hmm. know, done something. But, but nobody ever asked, and I never told, and and so that's what, so I wound up getting out, and it, it wound up being a good thing. My at the end of uh, I've been in civilian life for five years. My, uh, uh, my my dad died at the end of the five years. My wife's dad died after about four years, and so we had that time back with family and. Uh, and so it it worked out from that standpoint. Check, check. And how many years did you have in before you decided to get out? So I had when I got out, I had eleven. Eleven, okay. And uh, with for the retire for reserve points, I had twelve. Okay. So if I decided to stay in the reserves and retire. Check. Now, what happens after that? What brings so you back we, in? What's the catalyst that brings you back in? So again, my dad had retired from the reserves and he always talked about how he always liked the reserves. And he said, you know, when that whole time he was in the reserves, he talked about, you know, this is, I get to go and play with the Navy and, you know, and, and all this and get a little bit of a paycheck, uh, supplemental paycheck for the reserves. And he said, you know, when I get out, when I retire, when I hit 60, I'll get a check for about a hundred dollars just for going to the mailbox every month. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was worth it. So, uh, so when, uh, he hit 60, right about the time I was, um, uh, where was it? I'm forgetting. Anyway, when he hit 60, he actually got about $550 a month instead of a hundred dollars. Came so up a little, <laughs> came up a little. And so, you know, one of the things I didn't throw out there, you know, I, did, I didn't get out of the Navy because I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Even my wife, who really, I really had to convince her to let me join with the scholarship. When I decided, when we decided to get out, she really didn't want me to get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, she knew that, you know, in private practice, your paycheck's sort of dependent on, on you know, on patients and, and and how busy you are and everything she liked the regular paycheck from the navy yeah so she was actually not she wasn't all that enthused about getting out and so anyway i decided i would keep my commission because i didn't want to lose all of those potential benefits from when i signed up because of the way things had changed sure so, so i kept my commission stayed in the irr which was interesting when i when i went to get out the uh um, a guy in, in manpower didn't know how to do a letter requesting that I stay, that I be released from active duty because all doctors always just got out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to resign your commission? And I told him he had, 
had to look up exactly what he had to do to, to uh, make that happen. So anyway, I kept my commission thinking that I would stay in the IRR, individual ready reserve, you know, no drilling or anything. It's just my name on the book somewhere. And then if I found that, and when I was sure that things were, were working out, that I could afford the time to, to spend a week, weekend a month and two weeks a, a year, I would go back on in the drilling reserves and get my points for retirement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I did that. So after about two years, uh, I went to my partner and said, you know, I think I can do this. It's going to mean that uh, the biggest change it would mean for him was that, that, uh, we would have to make sure that our that his weekend on duty, you know, on call, uh, corresponded to my weekends with the reserves. Yep. Uh, because we kind of bounced around. We were real f uh, flexible with our schedule. Uh, so you know, I made sure that was okay with him. And then I was going to have to take two weeks uh, a year. And I, in my practice, I got uh, four weeks of vacation. And so I said, well, you know, I didn't want to give up two full weeks of vacation. So we, we, you know, I said, I'd made the deal where, where I would take one week of paid vacation as my, as my time away and one week of unpaid vacation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that meant that that was an extra week he was going to have to, you know, cover. Uh, and, but he was okay with all of that. So after about two years, I went to the, uh, uh, recruiter to, to uh, get in the, in the uh, selective reserve, drilling reserve. And because I'd made 05 before I got out, there was a uh, across the board ban on 05s coming in. This was in the, the drawdown period in the 90s. You know, Russia was gone. We didn't need the military anymore. And so even though the reserves was paying bonuses for general surgeons to come into the reserves, I couldn't because I was an 05. Wild. And so the, uh, so the guy said, you know, uh, do you care if I just keep your name and if they allow us to uh, go for waivers or release this restriction, we can give you a call? I said, sure. In the meantime, I actually called the Army <laughs> and said, hey, I'm a general surgeon and, you know, I'm an 05. The Navy doesn't want me in the reserves because I'm an 05. How about you guys? And he said, oh, yeah, we'll take it. Yeah. And the very morning he drove down from Louisville was about an hour, like I said, and to uh, sign me up. And he was on his way out the door when it came out. And it was not something I'd tried to hide. It just never came up that I had in the Navy before I got out had had an RK on my eyes for my vision. And at that time, that was a no-no in the Army. Hmm. So he had to tear the paperwork up. And he said, sorry, there's no waivers or anything else. Now, nowadays, they encourage you know, eye corrective surgery. Yeah. Corrective surgery. But in those days, they didn't. So. So even though it was done on active duty and, you know, the Navy owned my eyes then at that point, they, uh, the army didn't want me. So then I just went back and I kind of thought that was it. <laughs> and then in, in two, in the spring of 2000, the recruiter called me and said, Hey, we can request a waiver for Oh five. She's still interested. And I said, yeah. And so about two months later in April of 2000, I went back to, to the drilling reserves and so then I, uh, I did that, uh, I, uh, did that for a year and a, and a half and then nine 11 happened. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, uh, I, I put on Oh six and on the, uh, second weekend in January. And on the Monday after that, I got a phone call 
at my office saying, well, actually my, my secretary receptionist told me, Hey, you got, when I showed up at the office after making rounds, she said, you got a call from the reserve center and they want you to uh, call them that you're, as soon as you get back, they said they'll be there. And so at five o'clock on Monday morning, I called them and, or Monday afternoon, I called them and they said, yeah, we got orders here for you to go to Camp Lejeune at the, uh, you got to be there on Saturday. Boom. Now Boom. what, um, where were you at when, when the towers hit on nine 11? I was in the OR. Oh, okay. I was uh, in the OR. I was actually helping a gynecologist uh, in a case, and uh, we got got finished. Uh, went out, and in the doctor's lounge, the uh, TV was on. Uh, there was one or two other people there watching it. And as I remembered at that point, they didn't really know what had happened. It was the only the first one who had been hit by that point. On mm. the pictures, there was papers falling down. And all they knew was that a plane had hit. And then while we were watching, the second plane hit. And uh, and so then we kind of, I watched, st- stayed there and watched for a little bit longer. But then I had to go to another hospital for my own cases, for my own stuff. And while I was on the road, uh, I don't remember whether it was... Uh, my whether i heard it on the radio or when i got to the next hospital but it was but it was while i was on the road that the pentagon was hit mm-hmm. and so when I got to the other hospital then uh, it was a uh, an orthopedist that i kind of talked around with and uh, piled around with a little bit was there and he says we're at war mm-hmm. yeah and so that was it yeah and uh, and then shortly thereafter, you come up for orders to Lejeune. Mm-hmm. Now, talk yeah. about that. You hadn't been to Lejeune at that point, right? No. As a matter of fact, I was scared to death of being anywhere around Marines <laughs> because there was because I knew that there was a big difference between the Navy and the Marines as far as military bearing and all that that stuff. And yeah. Also, that you know, just between the regular Navy and the regular Marines. And then you throw medical types in on top of that. And we didn't know anything about being military. Let's be real. And I didn't want. I was scared to death to be anywhere around the real Marines that that I would be expected to be halfway military. And so I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and then, and to be honest, and I, I, I sort of know, but I don't really know. But every, it wasn't just me. Everybody hated Lejeune. Yeah, they didn't want to come to Lejeune. And so when I found out I got orders down here, it scared me to death. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had one big advantage over everybody else. I'm the first to admit it. Is when I showed up on at the at uh, Lejeune, I was an 06. <laughs> that's the only advantage. That, that's a big advantage to come to find out. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so uh, I got down here, and uh, it was it was uh, the whole whole thing was interesting like i said i called uh uh monday afternoon i called the reserve center and they said yeah we got orders you need to be here at the reserve center on monday morning uh to receive the you know the official mm-hmm. orientation and all that stuff and then i was supposed to be at uh our naval support center nttc i forget what the acronym was but whatever it was was in millington I was supposed to be there on Saturday. 
uh, and then four, and then ultimately come to Camp Lejeune. Well, I went on Wednesday morning, and I spent Tuesday calling everybody, telling them I was closing my practice, <laughs> and I was the only surgical practice in the in the two hospitals I covered. So that oh, was no. leaving them in the lurch. Uh, and then, um, so then I, the Wednesday morning thing was all about what to expect with that um, on active duty. Well, I'd spent 11 years on active duty. I sort of knew yeah, yeah. that. So that was kind of a little bit of a waste of time. And so then on Wednesday, so Wednesday afternoon, I finally said, you know what? I'm going to just call down there and see what's going on. So I called the surgery department in Lejeune and got a hold of another surgeon. He said, I don't know why you're coming. We don't need you. So we got, we got plenty of surgeons. Oh, good. And so it's like, well, then why am I why am I going through all this? So I, so I said, you know what? I'm a captain now. I'm going to call the CO. Boom. So I did. So I called the CO, uh, got his secretary. The CO was out. And it turned out that the CO was actually somebody I knew from residency. When I'd been a resident, he was a radiologist, staff radiologist. And he was the, the nice guy that we always went to when we needed anything when we needed to read on the films or we needed a special study or whatever, he was the one we looked for. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but anyway, I didn't get to talk to him right then. I talked to the secretary and she said, Oh yeah, we need you. I don't know who you talked to, but we we're definitely need you. We can't wait for you to get here. Blah, blah, blah. And when are you coming? Mm -hmm. so I said, oh, well, I was going to Millington on Saturday to do the check-in stuff. And then, and then I would be there whenever. And she said, Oh, you don't need to do that. Just come straight here. We got one of those. We got that department here. They can take care of all of that for you. And so I drove down there on, drove down here, got here on Saturday morning or Saturday evening. And I was supposed to check in by Saturday. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I showed up at the quarter deck and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, here are my orders. And they said, okay, great. And they stamped the order, said, see you on Tuesday. Sweet. We mean. <laughs> I said, why Tuesday? Said, well, it's Martin Luther King weekend. We're, it's a holiday till Tuesday. Oh, man, yeah. So I knocked myself out to get down there and then didn't have anything to do till Tuesday. <laughs> That's, that and, seems typical to me. Mm -hmm. Still and today. So then I found, so then, and then I was literally about a week later, uh, I forget. I forget who called me. Somebody called me. I guess it was my wife called me. I said, hey, the... Uh, we just got a call. The Navy's looking for you. They say that you're, uh, you're AWOL. <laughs> and I said, really? And so they, so I forget who I called, but, but it turned out that I really was supposed to go to Millington. When I didn't show up to Millington, they had me as not reporting. Yep. And whoever at, at Lejeune had not bothered to let anybody know that I was there. So then they had to figure that all out. And there was still some other things check boxes I had to go through that the that the hospital hadn't put me through yet to, mm -hmm. to get me on active duty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, how did you end up like in Lejeune? Like duties and, and oh, uh, environment was, and all of that. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. Um, I've, I've heard this from a lot of people that came out of civilian life. And when I got to Lejeune, literally, they thought I was working hard and I thought I was hardly working. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, the in the civilian world, like, you know, you, you make your money based on what you're doing. And in the Navy, there was none of that. So I, uh, it was interesting that coming off of the reserves, 
out of the reserves that I was able to get my privileges uh, in like three days. By, so I was, you know, by, I reported in Tuesday, came back on Tuesday morning, went through all the check-in stuff. And by Thursday, I was seeing patients. I was privileged. Wow. When I, when I ultimately was back on active duty and going between duty stations, it never took less than two to three weeks wow. to get privileges. And so, but uh, I started, I uh, started working. They had, uh, I sat down with the CEO. He said he wanted me to be basically be his spy in the surgery department because he said, we got all these surgeons and we can't seem to keep up. We got a long waiting list and we're deferring people out and, mm-hmm. and the numbers don't make sense. And so basically I found out that they were hardly working and I started seeing patients and the, I had to argue with the with the uh, clerk that did was in charge of the schedules because he said my schedule was too optimistic. There's no way I could keep up with it. And I said, well, just just trust me on this, and we'll see. And after literally after two weeks, I was in a in a um, morning clinic, and all of a sudden there was no patients scheduled for me. And I went out and asked him what's going on, and he said, well, there's no patients in the system waiting. You've cleared it out. Yep. And so I, I actually, I actually uh, started setting my schedule so that I only did morning clinics unless I was on call or, you know, and I would obviously operate in the afternoon. I said, basically, uh, if they, uh, as, as long as there's no waiting time for, for referrals, for consults, you know, don't schedule me in the afternoons. And so I actually got called to the CO's office because I was seen leaving frequently at lunchtime. And I said, told him, I said, you know, the only way you can reward me for hard work is time. Mm-hmm. I said, I cleared out your backlog. I'm clearing out your surgical log and there's nothing for me to do. So I'm going off and I'm working out and, and enjoying life. And if there's something to do, they call me and I come and, and take care of it. Said, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, was there any, uh, with the, with the other surgeons who were hardly working, how did that get handled? Um, like, well, sometimes these things handle themselves when you have a new leader come in and they start clearing things out and kind of showing them up. Was that the case or did it take more? No, they just kind of knew I was going to go away. So they just kind of ignored me and I didn't, I didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, I didn't say like, I'm, you know, I'm working hard and you're not, and you know, why not? I just went on, went about doing, doing my thing. Uh, we talked about one of the surgeons talked about how there was never any, he never got to operate because there was never any cases and I commented and he wondered why all of a sudden I was doing five and six cases a day, you know, a week on my one OR day. And I said, well, you got to see him in clinic to get the cases and you're not seeing any clinic. Mm-hmm, so, but mm-hmm. uh, he actually picked up his pace a little bit and saw that reward, but the others, you know, it really was, I think it was, they knew I was reservist. I was only going to be there for a period of time. I just figured they'd wake me out and that's, and that's basically what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since I didn't, I didn't care about what they were doing, you know, I just did my own thing and, and uh, took care of patients. Gotcha. Gotcha. So taking care of patients, you're down here at Lejeune. What, uh, what year are we at now? We're post two thousand one, but where are we this, at? This was January to June of 02. 02, yep, oh two. Yeah, so it turned out that the reason they recalled me was I was basically it was basically in those days recalled reservists were like bound money, you know. It was just uh, they kind of the you know the big navy sent out the word, hey, you need any reservists, and and so 
they had a surgeon here that was assigned to the Marines, to the Marine Medical Battalion. Mm -hmm. When those guys are, are in garrison, they would come over and operate at the hospital. Well, when he was when uh, the Afghan Afghanistan invasion happened, he went off with the Marines, and so the the hospital said, "Oh, we're short a surgeon. We're down a surgeon because of the war. Send us a new one." Yep. So that's who I was replacing. He actually came back after I'd been here for about a month, and uh, and uh, but um, so it was it was just you know that was. That was the wartime. Of course, then then uh, wasn't too long after I left in June. Uh, going after that, then they started talking about Iraq. Right, right. So making this transition down to Lejeune, I want to talk more about the family. How is the family taking a transition out of Memphis down to Lejeune and then getting into that new work uh, flow? Well, that so new now they're not in Memphis. They're in they're in they're actually in Southern Indiana now. We had moved. Okay. From the first, I had actually started my own practice, private practice, in uh, July of 2000, and so uh, we had. I was. It was in southern Indiana. Basically, I was in a suburb of, of Louisville. Okay. Just, okay. My bad. Uh, and so um, when I got recalled, uh, of course, nobody knew what was going to happen. So uh, I, I, it was essentially like a deployment because I went off. They stayed at home. Uh, you know, they didn't know whether I was going to wind up going over to Afghanistan with the invasion or what was going to happen. Uh, but it was, you know, it was five and a half, whatever, six months away from home. Uh, we talked on the phone. In those days, you still had to worry about, rate, you know, long distance rates and calling out sure. for hours and that kind of thing. But uh, we did manage um I guess we managed two visits together. We met in Gatlinburg for a weekend, and then uh, they came down here uh, in, in like April for a week um, to uh, visit. And I managed to get home back to the back to uh, Indiana for a weekend for the. Uh, um, let's see, who was it? Youngest, yeah, youngest daughter, uh, first communion. Okay. So, I mean, I was, I mean, that was, you know, something you can't do with a deployment, but we were, we were apart. Uh, their life didn't change. And then, you know, back in, back at that time period, it was still the, you know, the great patriotic resurgence of everybody was very supportive of, of the military at that point. Mm-hmm, so they got, mm-hmm. uh, they were, they, uh, they got, uh, you know, people were appreciative of, of what they were going through. Uh, so it was, uh, not a lot of difference. Right. So they didn't have to make the move, but they're still, you know, you're still dealing with that time away um, right. uh, 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 again. Um, uh, of course, the, the, a big difference from a deployment was I was away and they, you know, most uh, now granted, I know, you know, a lot of a lot of spouses and families when the when the when their uh, uh, the active duty member deploys, they'll pack up and go home mm-hmm. where the family is. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were not, my family was not around a military post. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was, it was a matter of, you know, finding somebody that took track care for medical care. And, you know, yep. and there wasn't a nearby commissary or any of that, to, right. to help them out. but, but, you know, again, by that time, my wife was an 11 year veteran too. So she knew how to, yep, how yep. to uh, navigate things uh, sure. that way too. So. 
Sure. So what happens from Lejeune? Uh, you guys activate for deployment? So, no. So, I mean, I was, I was just backfill here at Lejeune. Okay. Uh, so then I was, uh, I re- was released, uh, late May, early June. I guess I got a couple, uh, about a week of leave I'd built up. So I guess my official release was June and I, I left in May back home. Uh, unfortunately, that's where we found out that, uh, all of the things, you know, if a reservist is called up, you know, the, the employer's got to keep their job for them and put them back in. Well, guess what? If you're self-employed, that that doesn't help. And so um, I started trying to put the uh, practice back together. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the two hospitals I worked at were not supportive because they said, you know, you left. We had to find other coverage, and the other coverage just said they're not going to do this again. If you know, if the, we want them to keep covering, we got to keep feeding patients to them. And and uh, so they said basically, if you get out of the reserves and, and you don't have to worry about going away again, we'll we'll support you. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, otherwise, you know, we're gonna not gonna be able to support you the way we were. And so we we struggled with that for for. About six months. It was it was it was interesting. One of the one of the fun parts, you know, fun kind of thing is how our government works. The uh, here I had been recalled on short notice, and so we had to shut down my my Medicare provider uh, status. And when I came back and applied to get it back, they said, "Well, it'll be about six months." <laughs> And, I, and we're Classic. like, really? I, I get called by the military, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, sorry, that's just the way it is. So I actually, I called my congressman. Yeah. And I said, you know, this is what's happened to me. You're supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to be supported, blah, blah, blah. And uh, about so about half an hour after I talked to the congressman's office, I got a call from Medicare. And he said, when do you want to start this? <laughs> yeah, but. So like tomorrow, okay. So Perfect. Like, no problem. So it's still, you know, it's, it's sad that, that you know one, two government agencies like that, and that's what you got to go through. Yeah. To get any kind of cooperation, but anyway, I I struggled trying to put my practice back together and trying you know trying to to make it grow, um, grow back to where it was. Right, literally like in the middle of December before I got recalled. I'd gotten so busy. I remember sitting at the sitting at the hospital on a Friday evening about nine nine thirty, thinking I'm working too hard. I'm going to have to either start telling people no that I can't do everything, or start looking for a partner. That's how 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 well the practice was going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you know, a little over six months later, I can't can't find patients. Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, so then uh, in December of that year. Uh, my my billet in the reserves had been changed to a uh, billet with with uh, Bethesda. Okay. And uh, so in December that year, the they were ramping up for the Iraqi invasion, and uh, I found out that I had not been on active duty long enough to have prolonged dwell time. It was basically day for day, and so my day for day was was pretty much up. And so, I th- you know, it's like, well, the last thing I need is another recall. Mm-hmm. Well, I called the uh, department head of the surgery, surgery department at Bethesda and said, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a surgeon assigned 
to, you know, the reserve units supporting you guys. And I'm wondering about what you think the odds are of me getting recalled. And he said, well, I can't tell you anything because of OPSEC and all that. Right. But we, uh, we provide the staffing for the hospital ship for the comfort. And last week they sailed. And so he said, draw what conclusions you want to from that. Right. And so uh, my conclusion was they were going to have reserved backfills coming in. And so I talked it over with my wife. I said, you know what? Life was actually pretty good at Lejeune. And, you know, I don't want to give up. But by that time, I had like 15 years yep. uh, towards reserve retirement. And I just couldn't see giving that up. And so uh, so she gave her okay to come back on active duty. And, and so I, I called the, the specialty leader and found out what I needed to do to come back on active duty. And, and uh, so it actually took six months to make it happen. Mm-hmm. But I uh, came, but but fortunately, that took me off of the recall uh, list because mm-hmm. I was coming back. And so, uh, so July, I reported back to Lejeune, July twenty third of two thousand three. Okay, okay. And when you when you check back in, it, do you does it seem different around here, around Jacksonville, around Camp Lejeune area? At that point. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I mean, at that point, um, the, uh, a lot of Marines were gone. Uh, if I remember, I don't think they'd all gotten back from OIF yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, and things were still very support again, supportive of the military and everything. Uh, so, but that, I mean, that all I had to go by was the way it had been a year before. And sure. So pretty much the same now yeah pretty- we didn't really talk about it but i really liked it down here mm-hmm. i thought the weather was was great uh, i like the I, I like to say that jacksonville is like the biggest small town in the country because yeah. you know it's got a you know the population it's got's pretty big but it's really still got small town that's right. Uh, values and, and all that. And it is, a, you know, it's a military town, so it's very supportive of the military. And and so when I came back, I actually intend, I at that point, I needed what, nine years, eight and a half years for active duty retirement, which was my plan. And when I came back, I intended, we intended to stay here for those eight and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mm-hmm. said, no surgeon wants to go to Lejeune, so if you want to stay there, you're made. Be no problem. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so that was the plan. This was going to be home until I retired. It didn't work out that way for various reasons, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we always liked it here. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so what's, what, what comes after that? So I got here in July. Uh, I came by myself because uh, because of the we weren't sure when it was going to happen. When I was going to get here, uh, we didn't want to sell the house or anything back home. Sure. And so the, at that by that point, uh, the uh, uh, two oldest daughters were in. Uh, well, let's see. They they were both away. Both were in college at that point. I guess it was. Uh, the youngest one was in like the third grade, mm-hmm. had just third grade, 
And so we didn't want to, until we knew for sure what was happening, didn't want to put the house on the market or anything. And right. so uh, Debbie and the youngest daughter, my wife, Debbie, and the youngest daughter stayed behind and I came here on my own. Uh, and then, uh, so I was here, uh, the, um, I was not greeted with open arms. It was interesting. The, the CEO here had changed. He was the old CEO, the one that I had known, was very supportive, couldn't wait, was excited that I was coming back here. But in the meantime, before I could get back here, they'd had change of command, and the new CEO didn't know me from Adam. And mm-hmm. he's like, he was like, we don't need any more surgeons. We've got all the surgeons we need. Why are they mm-hmm. sending me? And uh, so I'm like, well, because I'm wanted to come here i liked it here and so anyway um the uh i got here in july went to work um and on a uh, wednesday afternoon at the end of september i was in the or at, at like four thirty-five in the afternoon my oldest daughter oh that's right she was in medical school by that time my oldest daughter was here visiting just by herself and she was in the OR watching while I was operating. She could do that cause she was a med student and she was in the Navy with the scholarship program. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Uh, so they were willing to let her uh, be in the OR. Uh, my department head comes, taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, you're going to Djibouti on Saturday. <laughs> uh, so, uh so and that well so basically what happened they had a uh frss uh fleet uh i forget what frss stands for i can't believe that anymore um forward resuscitative surgical system okay um you know which is basically the portable surgical team that goes with the marines they had one slated to go to djibouti to support special ops there and uh, this, the one of the surgeons had raised so much, caused so much trouble, basically, that they, the Marines said that we ain't taking him. We need somebody else. And wow. I was, and I was, I was it. Gotcha. And uh, so it was, uh, it was interesting. The CO wanted to talk to me after the department head, after I got out of the OR, uh, basically because after giving me such shit for not needing me. He wanted to thank me for not raising any hell for yep. the short notice or anything else. It's like, that's, you're in the Navy. That's what happened. I don't, you know, yep. I don't know yep. how you would expect any difference. He was, he, he asked me if there was anything I could do for me. I said, well, if you could get me paid, it would be great. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't gotten paid yet. Uh, but anyway, so uh, it turned out we wound up, uh, we were supposed to fly out on a C-17 out of uh, Cherry Point on mm-hmm. Saturday. Uh, it wound up, it kept getting pushed back because the Air Force couldn't spare a C-17 until Wednesday. So so my uh, Debbie and, the, and well, all of the kids came out to visit uh, to see me off. And that they had to go back on Saturday. But Debbie and the youngest one were able to stay until I actually left. So we had three or four days together before... Cool left and in that time period we had time to look around and figure out where we were going to live and and we wound up uh looking at on-base housing and found out that you know the on-base people were pretty supportive 
uh, of the military go figure <laughs> uh, especially when you're deployed and so uh, that may that uh, led us making the decision to live on base uh, so that actually Debbie moved with uh, with the with the youngest and our pets and everything uh, on Thanksgiving weekend while I was gone they moved without me and, uh, and so all of the neighbors and everybody pitched in and helping her get set up and getting things yeah. hooked up and all that. So it worked out well that way. So, Yeah, the family really bonded together over there on the base. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yep. you know, they're all in the si similar, if not the exact same situation. Mm -hmm. So they can empathize with each other and, and have that uh, that shared shared experience, shared camaraderie, both when, you know, yep. when the – when the service members home and, and abroad. So, yeah, I mean, it's every, every time she had any problem until I got back, it was, you know, she had a list of numbers she could call and somebody would be coming to coming to help her out right away. Yeah, the, uh, it was funny. The, uh, the daughter had a cat that when they got here, the cat escaped. She did the cat hated cars and had been in the car for two days and <laughs> escaped and didn't come back oh, no. uh, ultimately it, the cat came back but while uh alex was you know she's th third grade you know seven eight years old is wandering and then the cat's name was kitty because she had na named the cat when she was two mm -hmm. and so it, was, so it was kitty and so she was going up and down the, the housing you know going here kitty here kitty and uh some guy came out and asked her what was going on she said she, she was looking for her her cat, and so then, then this guy's going around looking into garage doors and everything, going here, kitty, here, kitty, and uh, then we, uh, uh, I forget what his last name was, but anyway, it turned out he was a general select. Oh, well, goody. <laughs> oh, general select Whistler. My wife just said it was Whistler, uh, and uh, so we always say, you know, it's kind of kind of neat to have a general <laughs> walking around looking for your cat. Looking for your cat, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's hope. Yeah, that's hope. So. Now, at some point, um, your daughter comes in, and then you guys end up on a mission together, or on the same ship together, right? So that was that was uh, we went to. So she was went through the scholarship program, did her internship, and became a flight surgeon uh, before she went to residency. And uh, we managed to pull some strings and and work behind the scenes and get get uh, assigned to the to the. Uh, S. Truman together. So because she was a flight surgeon, she was assigned to the air group and I was ship's company. So we were in different chains of command. So it was legal to do that. And so, uh, so we managed to pull that off. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And what's that experience like, uh, for you? Oh, uh, so it was, it was awesome. I mean, having my daughter with me and, and, uh, um, she was, um, she's one of these people that everybody knows who she is that, you know, she never met a stranger and she talked to everybody and anybody. And so she actually made several of the, uh, you know, training cruises before deployment, before I got there, she got, mm -hmm. she got to the, to the air group in, in February of that year. I didn't get to the ship until like September. And so every, by the time I got there, everybody knew her, including the Admiral. Uh, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the CO and, and yeah. you know, everybody knew her. And so, um, uh, by the time I got there, when I got my orders, 
they already knew her. And the day I got my orders, the ship's XO called me asking me why I was coming to the carrier because they already had a senior medical officer. They didn't need a, didn't need an 06 coming on board. And I said, hey, I'm just being a surgeon. I don't, he's like, well, you know, you're, the, the SMO is going to be your boss. He's going to, he's an 05. Are you going to be okay with that? And I said, the last thing I want to do is be the boss. I just want to be the surgeon and, and, uh, and so, uh, so then that was okay. And then the, uh, but the CAG called April, my daughter in, and he was, he want he was concerned that I was being an overbearing father that <laughs> was trying to ruin her, his daughter's fun and making, you know, looking over her shoulder and everything. And she's, she's like, had to convince me, oh no, we, we're, we've been working on this together. I think it'll be awesome. We want to do this. And so, yeah. uh, so, they were, so they were okay with it. And so. Uh, so we did the Gulf deployment and, uh, we had a lot of fun with it, even though the ships. So by that time she was already married. So we had different last names mm -hmm. and like the first month I was there, the ship's paper put out an article about us, but throughout the entire cruise, uh, you know, different people would come to me, you know, like the chaplain came to me and said, you know, I got somebody that called to, uh, came down and said, no, there's a captain and a lieutenant running around, male and female, and they're they're it's just not right. They're just all the time together. <laughs> and uh, and for I said, you know, it would be great if one of them would, would say, you know what, you know, not only that, but they're both married and not to each other. Right, right. No, but they didn't. They wouldn't take it that far. But they, but they, we did have fun with it that way, and we. We uh, we went to Rome together, you know, on Liberty, and mm -hmm. had, had a uh, port call, Liberty call in uh, Marseille. So we had uh, time time there together, and, and uh, Crete, and mm. uh, it was just uh, a really unbelievable time. We spent we like to do uh, jigsaw puzzles. So we every night we met in the wardroom and work would work on puzzles. And, and, yeah. uh, and that was one of the things that people would say, you know, one of the, one of the chaplains said, he told one of these guys that was, was talking about, said, you know, not only that, but every night they're in the wardroom together. And when they uh, go, go their separate ways, they kiss each other. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, you know, I had more than one person that came to me and said, you know, I just wish that I could have a, a relationship with my daughter like you've got. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was awesome. No, that's an awesome thing. And, and, you know, my kids are young and weren't even around when I was traveling the world and I wouldn't have wanted them in most of the places that I was going, you know, as yeah. a, as an infantry Marine, but there were places that were cool that I would have loved to have shared experience with my family mm -hmm. members. There were those places for me, um, Cyprus, Crete, uh, yeah. Greece, you know, even just some of these places that were just in passing, you know, you only get a couple of hours. If I could share that with my people from home or with right. my father or with my son now, um, I, I believe that would be a very, very, very cool experience. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, uh, so since I missed that, let's go back. Um, I really wanted to touch on, touch on that deployment with your daughter, but I got out of loop with uh, chronological mm -hmm. order. Let's go back before that and, and catch me up on, on your desert deployments. Okay. So, so the, the Djibouti deployment actually, um, was a was a uh, we were going there to support uh, special ops, and it, it turned out in if you looked at the timeline, literally at about the the same instant that we're putting our 
boots on the bus to, to head for Cherry Point, they were putting that mission on hold, AFRICOM. Mm. Um, they were, the plan was they were going to send the spec ops guys out, you know, seven or eight hours uh, by air out into the, you know, badlands of Africa. And uh, they didn't have any kind of medical support. So the, the plan was they were going to take us and put us about an hour away from them in the, in the middle of the Badlands and provide a few Marines for, for uh, security. And we were going to be there as a surgical support for the special ops mission. Sure. Uh, but literally, as we were, as we were getting, heading, getting on the bus to head over, uh, they put that mission on hold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They didn't cancel it. So we got there, uh, which in and of itself was kind of interesting. But we get there and they said, uh, you know, we don't know what we're going to do with you. You know, just do some training and and we'll figure out what we're going to do. So we put our tents up, took them down, put them up, took them down, did that for for a little while. And then we then the tents started breaking. So I said, I was the OIC. I said, well, that's enough of that. We don't want to want to break them and then uh, after we'd been there not quite a month uh they came uh came to me and said hey could we like put you guys on a on a small ship and could you operate on a small ship and i said sure and so they uh put us on lpd the ss ogden okay Uh, we left about half of our support people we had our unit was about 28 people including nurses corpsmen and and the marine security and uh, we left uh, about we went aboard with about 12 people uh, two they, there was two surgeons an orthopedic surgeon uh, anesthesia provider an or nurse and a couple of other corpsmen and the idea was that we were gonna the spec ops guys were gonna go ashore up and down the uh, african coast doing things and we were going to be there on the on the ship that didn't normally the ship nor didn't normally have uh surgical capabilities and they didn't want to didn't want to use one of the bigger decks because they didn't want to draw attention to themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well we basically floated up and down the african coast for two months and every once in a while we'd go to to uh, river city and the spec ops guys would go off and do their thing and then come back aboard and then we'd go somewhere else and uh so and all of that nothing bad, bad happened we, they didn't need us we didn't do anything but uh then we got after about two months we got back to Djibouti and they said okay thanks a lot we don't need you anymore and they sent us home hey man coming yeah. into my ears that's that's good news that means nobody yeah. you know a, a board surgeon is my favorite kind uh, yeah. especially coming from exactly. my, our community and and just to catch people up on why this is important to me um as an infantryman coming up uh training and, and then deploying into both iraq afghanistan i did do a deployment to gitmo early in my career as well but iraq and afghanistan when you're when you're deploying into combat and and you're in my position as a squad leader what i teach my marines is as soon as he gets hit you know we got self-care buddy care doc care you know corman care mm-hmm. after that if we inside of an hour can get a helicopter to land or a truck to come and get mm-hmm. our guy back to the next echelon of care, a trauma mm-hmm. center where they actually have surgical right. teams. If we can do that in under an hour, generally, 
depending on the severity of the wounds and, and the stabilization that, you know, that occurs on the battlefield, generally they call that the golden hour. If we can get that person right. to the next echelon of care, uh, you know, level one uh, trauma care center, somebody with surgery, you know, uh, like Ken and his team are providing um, on these deployments, then the odds of that service member living through his experience or her experience um, drastically improves. 60 mm -hmm. minutes to the next trauma care center with good stabilization, a lot of times we get that back. Uh, we get that that Marine back or that right. soldier back. And so it's very important to have these co-located areas, whether it be on a ship or in the middle of the Badlands, mm -hmm. that have this um, technology and the capabilities to provide level one trauma uh, surgeries and care to these guys. So it's very important to me. And I've never had, you know, somebody on that's been in that situation. So if you wonder, you know, you've sitting here for the last hour wondering about why this may be important to me. Uh, that's why it's important to me because I've had guys that inside that golden hour had to get somewhere very quickly. Um, and, and not that it always worked out, but the fact that these people, um, like Ken and, 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 and his, um, his compatriots that were with him on his deployments without them being there, then I can't get hurt. I can't get scratched. Mm -hmm. I can't get an infection. I can't take a through and through, you know, without that care, I can't, I can't do that and then make it back. And so it's very important to me. So just wanted to, Let's, just wanted to throw that yeah. out there, but go ahead. Well, Ken. That was, uh, you know, it was interesting with the, the, the spec op guys that we had on the on the ship. So we they had offloaded all, all of the regular Marines. This, the, the Ogden was part of a MU. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They offloaded all the Marines in Djibouti. I felt sorry for those guys because they weren't going to have anything to do for those two months. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, And so in the, the ship was, you know, the, there was, I don't know, a couple hundred spec ops, if that many mm -hmm. guys on board, and then us, and mm -hmm. then the regular ship's crew. So. So, um, but the, you know, time and time again, these spec op guys would, would come up to us and say, and say, you know, that they were used to operating where there was no, you know, they didn't expect surgical capabilities mm. because mm -hmm. nowhere close to where it was. And to have us on board, they, that we couldn't believe how much that meant to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, just think like for me to know that I have sur you know, surgical care, you know, almost in a moment's notice when things go bad, that gives me as a warfighter a warm and fuzzy. If you were to say, Hey, if you get hit, you got nothing that, you know, mm -hmm. that's a whole different, that's a whole different uh, scheme that you're going to run when, when you don't have care. Um, and so, yeah, I, I could, I could definitely empathize with, you know, with those yeah. feelings of comfort and, 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 uh, and help that's going to be available to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, just to, to, to pack onto that just to let you know i mean i was in position to uh, you know be on some planning things and and what have you uh the marines especially but e but even the navy in their own way recognize that importance and they they spend a lot of time figuring out how they can keep that surgical capability within within that hour time frame and to that to that point the marines actually uh, a couple years ago, started paying for the billets for active duty surgeons. Uh, that that has not increased the numbers of surgeons, but what that's done is that's made taken the surgeons that normally would be just assigned to, to hospital billets wherever, and that it assigns them to the to the medical battalions, mm -hmm. Marine medical battalions, and so that those guys. 
then the Marines have control of them so that they can train them and do what they need to do so that they, then when they need them to deploy, just like I did, instead of having you know a bunch of people that don't necessarily know anything about the Marines or anything else, uh, you know, they're, they're coming ready, ready trained, ready to go. And so that is not a uh, insignificant amount of money or uh, uh, priority that the Marines are, are showing by, by putting that putting that out there and, and putting that priority on getting those surgeon billets and, and the support support care that go with those surgeons. So sure. the, the, the Marine leadership gets it. And I had, you know, I had more than uh, one senior Marine. I, I remember I had a Marine general that his daughter went to school where my daughter went and he just caught me in the ha- hallway one time and, you know, thanked me for my service. And I was like, you know, what do you mean? Everybody, you know, you're, thank you for yours and what have you. And he said, no, he said, you know, I re- we recognize we need you surgeons. We need you guys. We can't send our men into, uh, into harm's way into combat without the support you guys provide. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the, the leadership of the Marines, they get it, they understand it, uh, you know, and they, uh, and they recognize that it's hard to provide that support, but they do what it takes to make yeah. sure they have yeah, you know, it, coming up in the service, there's always parochial attitudes and parochial personalities and natures, you know, to the intramural squabbles that we have with each other, with one another, with you're from the Navy and, you know, we're from the, this is the men's department of the Navy. Maybe you'd hear that come up. You you, you see the, the, you know, the gaffes back and forth to the army dogs. And at the end of the day, when bullets are flying and uh, there's another U.S. member on the field with you. It doesn't matter what his mm-hmm. uniform looks like. And that was something that's a piece of humility and a, a little slice of humble pie that I got late in my career because to that point, I really didn't need a, ter- a trauma surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I never had a use for one. So it wasn't on my, you know, it's not in my purview, let's say. Uh, and then when you start having guys get riddled uh, and blown mm-hmm. up and you want them back and you need them back and you want them to live, um, you, you find a whole new, um, just a whole new depth of, of, of appreciation for medical staffing and for, uh, logistical staffing and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. that's something that I wish that I would have got younger, uh, yeah, in my I mean, career. You but. know, when you look, look at it, when we, when we were in Iraq, so we would take care of, we, we got both army and Marine, mainly Marine, but we've got some army casualties run through as well. And so, you know, Army Marines, we had, you had Navy, us Navy uh, medical taking care of you in the, in the initial surgical care. And then guess who was who would then come and take them away and get them to the back was, would then be the Air Force. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was a it was a tri-service combined quad, effort for combined sure effort to, to take care of people. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. Now, so. Uh, you you go to into Iraq as well and Afghanistan. So I went to Iraq in 2004. Uh-huh. This was uh so the you know Djibouti I got 48 hours notice of deployment. So uh, Iraq <laughs> I got Iraq I got a week. Oh good, uh, <laughs> a little yeah, more. So it was it was, uh, it was the uh, well actually not quite a week. It was the Tuesday after Labor Day. I come in and I'm like checking emails and then. And I get notice that I need to be in uh, Pendleton uh, by the by the following Monday. 
and so that was uh so i was a last minute replacement for uh, a surgeon for a surgical group going to iraq and so i wound up going through pendleton to, to get my gear basically and then went on to iraq and went to camp to cottom okay i don't know if you remember that one nope i don't <laughs> So Takatam was uh, an old Iraqi air base, and uh, we were uh, virtually halfway between Fallujah and Ramadi. Okay. And so we were there during the, that was during the, when Ramadi was hot, and then during the the Fallujah battle to retake Fallujah. So we were, uh, there was actually a surgical company in Fallujah that, uh, that basically during the battle, they took the casualties from one side of the river and we took them from the other side of the river. Okay. And so that was, that was the only one of my deployments where we actually, where I actually was involved in, in combat casualties. Now talk and to me about, got... talk to me about combat casualties because it's one thing to be blue siding in a hospital and dealing with training incidents and, um, you know, ailments and, you know, things of that nature. Um, kind of breathe a little bit on that uh on that so, deployment when you start I mean, taking in combat casualties so i mean that, to me that was that was the you know the high point or the that was what my whole career was about was to take care of casualties mm-hmm. uh you know, we, i mentioned earlier on that uh, um, as a general surgeon we were trained to operate not to do an operation mm-hmm. and part of our training was trauma and so I never, I always felt like I was, you know, every day that I was operating in the hospital stateside, I was training to do this, to do the job uh, when the time came. And so, uh, and that's basically what happened. Uh, the, the guy, the group I went with, we were actually two frisses combined with two surgical uh, or two um, uh, STPs. Uh, shock trauma platoons yep. we were combined into one we were basically a surgical company without the holding capacity we had the same or surgical capability but we didn't have the we didn't have the non-surgical care and we didn't have the 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 means to take care of people for more than a, a day or two after we got them mm-hmm. we needed to keep moving them on uh, and that was a, a bit of a new concept uh, the FRSSs during the Afghan Afghani invasion proved their worth, but they were only capable of taking one patient at a time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, uh, it didn't. You know, a helicopter taking two casualties couldn't do any good stopping there because it was too much. Yeah. And so they they decided they the the Marines. You know, I don't know who made the decision, but decided that if you know. If we combine this big group, then then maybe that would multiply our capability, and that's what happened. And it was proved during Fallujah, uh, during that week, ten days, we took over 120 casualties, something like that. Mm-hmm. We were never had to close down. We never had to say we were full overflights or anything. Between we had uh, uh, three anesthesia providers, so we could we could have three tables going and we had three general surgeon and orthopedic surgeon. And so we could, we could, you know, have, keep all three tables busy if we needed to. And, uh, and that's basically what we did. And so that was, that was our, uh, 
capability. We were a roll two, which I don't know if you know what that means. So a roll roll one care is non-surgical. That's like you said, buddy care, or this the shock trauma platoon is basically the mobile ER mm-hmm. where they provide you know more advanced resuscitation, but they don't have surgical capabilities. And then roll two is where you get into the surgical capabilities, where we talked we talked about doing what we did was damage control surgery we mm-hmm. operated mm-hmm. stop bleeding in the case of abdominal wounds stop the you know close up the bowel or whatever just to stop the leakage we didn't necessarily fix it we didn't necessarily hook things back together uh, our our goal was to get in and out you know get people stabilized and get them on down the road to definitive surgical care mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what we did and we did a pretty good pretty good job of that we it was at that point that IEDs were really coming into their own and we were seeing patterns of injuries that we didn't expect. I mean, we basically, you know, before, before the Gulf, we were all, you know, we always thought, you know, chest wounds, abdominal wounds, those were what was going to get you. But body mm-hmm. armor was so good that, that we didn't see much of that. We saw, the, you know, the legs blown off, the arms blown off, uh, you know, heads, heads battered around. Sure. And, uh, and so we, but it was, you know, uh, we had, but we were, you know, we had something like a, you know, pretty much if you showed up to us with a pulse, we, you would leave us alive. Yeah. We would keep alive. And, uh, and so, uh, it was, uh, very satisfying. Uh, you know, we would have patients marines uh, laying there on the gurney who you know their last words to us before they went to sleep was thank us thanking us for being there and it's like thanking you know thank you for doing what you're doing you're doing way more than we're doing uh but it was it was intense and uh very satisfying it was also it was kind of interesting we did come under indirect fire a couple times times you know no big deal you know i like to i always joke that the uh uh when the alarm went off that meant it was all clear because by the time the alarm went off <laughs> yeah. you know the, the the guys would fire off three it was always three mortars oh yeah and, you know they were they jump out of their truck somewhere you know fire them off and then jump back in their truck and go yeah and by the time the alarm went off they were already gone and there was no more coming that's right i happened it was and of course i was afraid to let the family know what was going on that there was even that (laughs) that much going on so you know i didn't uh didn't let them know and i was actually on the phone one time when a mortar went off about 50 yards outside the tent and it was like (laughs) boom and it's like april gotta go yep 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 she she didn't know and a couple times we were operating when when they were going off and we just pick up the patient put them down on the floor and just kept doing what we could do on the floor until until we were sure it was all clear and put them back up on the table and uh so i mean i can't it, that's nothing like going through what you guys go through in the infantry or anything but i think it uh, sounds start- exactly like what we go through <laughs> <laughs> like I, I mean, when there's when there's outgoing missiles or rockets or mortars, there's nothing you can do. Uh, right. It's going to land somewhere, and anywhere you mm-hmm. run for safety could potentially be where it's going to land. Is the way that we felt about it. Uh, it's a, a, almost a desperate feeling on the battlefield when you hear that outgoing, mm-hmm. doom, you know, because now yeah. you're like, well, it's out. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere. Get small fellas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, so that was that was the you know that was the uh, uh, that was my time. You know, that was what I did for twenty seven years. Was that that six month period is what it was all about. Yeah, and I thank you for that, and and your staff because just like those Marines are thanking you, the last things that they're saying before they go under or or ultimately you know pass on, um, that's that gratitude that comes from them. That gratitude that I I knew you were here to help me, so that's mm-hmm. that's huge to me. Um, now, did you ever did you go into Afghanistan as well or no? I did. So I went in. Uh, I went to uh, Dalaran. Okay. Uh, in. We got there in the fall of uh, 2010. Okay. Again, it was another another frisk. In this case, it was a one frisk. What is that? A frisk. So the frisk is uh, it stands for forward resuscitative surgical system, and basically that is the surgical team with its equipment that that was designed to be able to be lifted by helicopter and dropped wherever it's needed we got we got uh i guess it was three of the of the uh, i even forget the name of the tents but the the three self-supporting tents uh that basically was one one was for the or one was for the recovery and pre-op and one was for living mm-hmm, and uh, we got all the you know we got everything we needed to operate with, with between equipment and uh we actually had ox- oxygen generators. They were actually o- oxygen filters that just basically sucked the oxygen out of the, it sucked everything else out of the air away from the oxygen and left us with oxygen. Gotcha. Um, and then uh, generators. And so the idea was that we could on our own be dropped somewhere and, and within an hour or so take patients. Yeah. It was designed to, uh, we, we could, su- we could support 16 patients without resupply. Wow. It was, in, it was interesting that a lot of the line people didn't understand didn't understand that without resupply thing. They thought that it meant we could take 16 patients at once. Yeah. And I have to explain, you know, I'm, there's one surgeon, me, I'm really good, but I can only operate on one person at a time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, that's something that uh, was interesting in discussing, uh, you know, war plans and everything. And they thought they were going to have six, 16 patients taken care of at once. Yeah, I'm yeah. This one. Yeah, I understand. Now, Delaram was kind of spicy when I was there in 2010. Now, I wasn't in Delaram. I was in Marja, northern Marja. Um, yeah, but so, if you're talking about the fall, you're talking about like September time frame? Think, think, yeah, September. We got, actually got there in October. Okay. Uh, so... Our, um, the group that I was with, the, the med battalion, uh, we, we actually, we trained together. And in that group, we had three frisses and three of the shock trauma platoons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one went to Marja, I think it was Marja, and where they were still seeing stuff. Mm-hmm. Delaram, we we were there for six months and and saw basically nothing. Okay. And then there, then there was another. The third group was kept in reserve at Leatherneck. Yep. And and they kind of went out here and there with their they they thought they might be needed and and they never was. It was only the group that was at Marja that really 
uh, saw anything. Yeah, Marja was was a shit show in 2010, all of 2010. We did the invasion, yeah. and we were out by the time you got there, because I want to say it was August, mm-hmm. either August or... Yeah. I want to say it was August yeah. that I left. Supposedly, when we got there, everything was, was you know, combat operations had ended, but, but there was still still stuff going up there in the north. The, For the sure. Delamont was cool. I, I think Dwyer, was it Dwyer? Was it or Dyer? Dwyer? Dwyer. Dwyer. Yep. They, they were... They, they were uh, uh, that was one of the places the group from Leatherneck went, and then they wound up actually packing up and going back to Leatherneck. I think mm-hmm. the army took over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, there was really only up north, up north, where near the dam, there was still some stuff going on that the the other guys uh, got involved with, but but we didn't. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that, and I don't know this to be a hundred percent fact, but I'm I'm almost certain that all of our trauma one guys that got uh, lifted out of Marja during the invasion went straight to Leatherneck. And if they didn't go yeah. to Leatherneck, they went to Dwyer and there was something at Dwyer. Yeah. Um, because so we Le- staged in Le- Dwyer and we, and we, uh, he load in out of Leatherneck because there were more resources at Leatherneck, right. a bigger field. So right. I think at the time, most of the stuff was going straight over there. Yeah, it was. And that, and while we were at Delaram, a couple, you know, there were a couple things that we thought we might get Get some casualties and they wound up just going straight and leatherneck was actually a, a british it was actually british british the british show was bastion you know bastion yep that's leather. right and they had they were actually staffed with a with a couple of a few navy people but it was mainly a british show and uh and so they were they were just they were kind of like what i'd been involved with in iraq it was mm-hmm. just uh, it was their surgical capabilities weren't a whole lot more but they just were bigger and more robust mm-hmm. and, and uh the distances were, were it was short enough that you could get them to leatherneck within that hour uh as opposed you know as opposed to in iraq where where everything was more spread out sure and, and you needed to meet meet it needed more people around to get into that golden hour flight time Gotcha. Gotcha. Now you said that, you know, your entire 20 plus years at this point leading up, uh, led up to this six month, you know, stint, um, Mm -hmm. where you were, you know, before where you were taking care of these guys. And now, you know, again, where you're, Mm -hmm. you're in an area to take care of these guys. Do you feel like you were prepared, um, as best you could have been to make a difference in those situations? So, yeah, I do. Uh, and, but again, it kind of goes back, uh, to my train, you know, my training, mm-hmm. my residency. Um, I know that there was a lot of, and especially reservists, but there was a lot of people that, that got, you know, uh, got sent de- on deployment who felt that they weren't ready, weren't trained. Uh, and I think it goes back to the, I think the training in residency changed a little bit so that it was not as, as a gen, as much generic surgery so that you felt, I mean, I felt confident, comfortable, um, dealing with any part of the body, mm-hmm. especially with injuries. I mean, I might not feel quite as comfortable if you come to me with some neck thing for an elective surgery. Whereas, you know, with trauma, you know, I feel like I can get in and, and, tie something off or stop the bleeding or stop the stop whatever 
and send, you know, then get you back to where the definitive care takes place. Mm -hmm. I always felt comfortable with that from, from my training. Mm -hmm. uh, I always made the, the joke that, uh, you know, a lot of times we'd go pre-deployment training, which most of my deployments, I didn't have any pre-deployment training, but I always said, I didn't need it. And I said, as a surgeon, if you show me where to operate, where to eat, where to sleep, I'm ready. I'm good to go. You're all set. Yeah. I'm all set. And, but uh, a lot of the younger generation with the residents, you know, as they come out of residency now, they're not quite, the, the training's not the same. And even in my generation, the people that trained in civilian programs, I suspect, you know, there's not, not quite that amount of, of training that, the, that gives them the comfort to go do what they need to do. And, and again, the Marines and the Navy, and you know, the DOD for that matter is addressing that. I mean, they're coming up with trying to come up with plans like Lejeune now is a trauma center, yep. you know, double it's a level three, but just that amount of trauma, you know, I, that's what I did for the two, two, three years after I retired. Mm -hmm. That's why I was there is because they needed more surgeons because of the trauma center. Mm -hmm. And I could see that just that amount, even, even though you're not, you're not getting, they're not war wounds. You know, and not many gunshot wounds. I mean, most of the stuff they see is blunt. Mm -hmm. It's still just dealing with an injured patient. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and being comfortable with taking care of somebody that's, that's injured and what you got to do to take care of them. That training goes a long way towards, towards dealing with the war wounds. But they're also looking into... Uh, cooperative agreements with civilian trauma centers where you know sending uh, they're talking about sending uh, sur uh, surgical teams to a to you know their duty station being a civilian trauma place and where they will work there for a year and then they'll be uh, then they'll be sent out on deployments uh, sure you know so do you think uh, it's going to work better do you think it's going to prepare them better um it definitely if that's i really think that the level three trauma center is is perfect for what we what we need uh unfortunately the lejeune is unique uh as at least as far as the navy goes i don't know anything about the army and the and the air force where they are or anything but in the navy system lejeune's unique because it's in a in an area where there is no civilian trauma centers nearby mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so by providing we're providing a service without stepping on anybody's toes or without getting in the way mm -hmm. i mean it, it makes no sense like for san diego you know or, or even norfolk there's a level one civilian trauma center there mm -hmm. so it makes no sense to put another trauma center there just for navy training tracking because yes. it's just going to get in the way yep uh, so, so Lejeune is unique that way and that, that the civilians are very supportive because we are providing a service to the civilians they don't have. And it's, and it is providing training, uh, and experience to the, the guys that are working. Now, so Onslow Memorial is not a level one trauma center, it, but uh, isn't uh, the, the closest is pit or is it? So the closest level one, um, and I, I'm, I think the closest. Closest level one is Raleigh. 
Okay. I'm not uh, level. I'm not sure. It may be Biden up in uh, at Eastern Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, Biden. Yeah. Yeah, Biden. I think they are level one. I think so I think you're but right. It's important. So so what the different levels in the civilian world are. So a level level one trauma center is the big trauma center. It's got every surgical capability you could want. Uh, and, and they, and they are also a research center. So Mm -hmm. they're doing studies and doing research and whatever. The level two is pretty much the same, except they don't do the level of research. Okay. They have pretty much all of the same capabilities. Uh, and level two, Wilmington's a level two. Now I've heard that they're trying to become a level one, but I'm not sure whether that's going to happen or not, but they're a level two. And, and of course, Raleigh, North Carolina and Duke, they're, they are level ones. Um, so you had this, you know, basically a triangle with Jacksonville in the middle and it's, you know, it's more than an hour to to all places. And, and, and because we, we became as a level three, uh, so a level three, which is what Lejeune is, is it doesn't have neurosurgical capabilities and it doesn't have vascular capabilities. Okay. And in reality, that level three is the same as the role two in combat. Okay. Okay. And so there, and that's pretty much what we need to train for is because yes, there are going to be the surgical subspecialists that are going to be sitting back in the, in the way in the rear receiving all these casualties and they're going to be doing definitive care Mm -hmm. where the rubber meets the road and the road in the role two, that's exactly what a level three is doing in the civilian world. And so, um, so uh during my time with involved with that it was like this is perfect this is exactly what the navy needs for training for their for their surgeons but like i said it's a unique situation they can't do that in portsmouth i mean portsmouth is trying to become a level two but in the meantime right across the river is is uh eastern virginia level one and they are like want nothing to do with us being a level two, mm-hmm. and they're they're basically saying that that they're not going to provide any kind of support right now. The Navy residents—that's where I got my uh, trauma training in residency—was at EVMS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're saying, "Hey, if you open, if you insist on doing this, we're not going to train your residents anymore." Mm-hmm. So, and, and I'm sure there's similar, you know, similar kind of parochial. Uh, territorial is that about money uh it's partly about money yeah i, I assume uh, it's partly about you've got to get there's a certain volume you need to maintain your stat maintain status both in training and experience mm-hmm. uh and so that you know that's probably part of, of it um I, i'm not sure how the uh, how it would uh the military Terry there would fit into the overall state because all of the states now have a trauma system of some sort or another. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, with, with Lejeune, when they became a trauma center, they had to, they got certified both by the American College of Surgeons, who, who is uh, basically oversees trauma in America, but also there's a state trauma uh, commission, state trauma. Board, who they have to, they had to get 
uh, approval and get uh, certified through them as well. Sure. And again, like I said, they were happy to have us because we weren't stepping on any toes. We were providing a service and, you know, basically we're, we're helping the, the level twos and ones by stabilizing patients, yep. you know, getting, you know, uh, instead of, you know, and, and even though they're bigger, you know, sometimes they get overwhelmed with, with patients anyway. So we're, we're taking those patients off their hands, you know, the ones that made, you know, like the car wreck that doesn't really need surgery, but we need to watch them. Mm-hmm. So we watch them, you know, for 24 hours or whatever, take care of their minor injuries. That keeps the big guys from having to take care of those. So, yeah. so at least from everything that I could see, we were very welcomed into the system here in North Carolina. Sure. Uh, but, but I'm not, not hearing that that's happening anywhere else, gotcha. at least in the, said army and the air force and now fort bragg or whatever the new name is going to be uh they are going to they're working on if they, they may have gotten there already they're working on starting a trauma center but again they're kind of they're off yep. on their own so yep. they're not going to be interfering with anybody else as well so there may be you know a lot of army bases are out in the middle of nowhere so they they can probably do a trauma center without a without a, a big problem whereas the navy most navy bases are in big city ports, ports yeah. you, know, they, you know where they have uh, already have trauma and, and big medical capabilities so gotcha gotcha so um gosh we've been going for a couple of hours what um what did i miss oh uh, not a whole lot not a whole uh, lot I'll I tell mean, you I what, I've learned a lot. I, I've never, uh, I've never had a doctor come on and, um, and kind of, you know, lay it down yet. This you're the first one. So it's definitely, there's some acronyms there and some stuff I'm going to do some research yeah. on now, but. Well, I mean, you know, you can text me if you need to need me to explain anything. Um, you know, I, when I came back on active duty, my plan was to spend my nine, my nine more years and, and then get out and I wound up actually doing 16. So my total time was 27. So that's, um, you know, how much in, you know, in the mean, and since then, like I told you, I've, I've retired. I send it, spend, send out there to everybody. Hey man, when you can retire, retire. I recommend it. Cause <laughs> I, highly I, don't recommend. Know, I don't understand these people that could retire and keep on working because life's too short, man. Yeah, retired at 06. seen, but, What's that? What you retired at 06? Yeah. 06, yeah, I was yeah. I was actually spent more time as an 06 than everything else combined. Wow. I was I was an 06 for uh, 16 years and and everything else for 11 years. Get some. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah. Ken sample everybody. Ken, I I greatly appreciate you coming on the show and taking, you know, taking the time out to uh you know, give us, um, give us a view from at least myself and, you know, I'm sure others give us a view from, from the other side of the bush there. Um, guys that, uh, in my community coming up, you know, we were putting people in those situations to go see people Mm -hmm. like you and, um, and then had to send our buddies, you know, you know, to, to, to guys like you and your team. And, and on behalf of me and all of my guys, uh, I can at least say thank you for what you do. 27 years worth of giving back and saving life is, is nothing to, um, to shrug off or, uh, um, or, you know, look at in any way other than exceptional, in my opinion. Um, so 
uh, I'm glad we met. I'm glad we got to got to lay this down, and uh, hopefully, this knowledge, you know, bringing some of this knowledge out to the Navy, Marine community, Army communities, um, and, and and doctor communities can be eye opening and, uh, and maybe humbling uh, to some of them. And maybe you know, if you're a, if you're a young doctor right now in your residency and you're hating it. Um, and you're thinking about, you know, your next, you know, the next day that comes up that you're done with your residency and you're keeping account. Um, maybe this can help you uh, stay the course and realize that maybe there is reasons for the way that you're trained and the way that, you know, mm-hmm. you've, those first couple of years go. Um, so, again, Ken, thank you so much. Ken Sample, everybody. Choices, not chances. Until next time. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast. Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny, funny shot. Yeah. Funny.